Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to Unfiltered. My name is Ollie Dugmore, and my guest today is a politician. The son of a bus driver, the son of an immigrant... But that's as far as the political cliches go. One of eight children, he would go on to become the first Muslim mayor of a Western capital, with the largest personal mandate of any politician in Britain. Within months of taking office, his city, London, experienced three fatal terrorist attacks. At least 72 people died in the Grenfell fire, the UK voted to leave the European Union, and then-President of the United States, Donald Trump, called him a, quote, pathetic excuse for a mayor. Seven years later, he is seeking a record-breaking third term. Sadiq Khan. Welcome to Unfiltered. How are good you? Good to be with you, Ollie. I, I forgot what my dad did, so I'm glad you reminded you on this. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Everyone, everyone's forgotten that one. Everyone's forgotten that one. Um, how's Tricks? What have you been up to? It's good. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, still thoroughly enjoying being the mayor of this great uh, city, trying to do what I can to help our city's recovery after the uh, uh, pandemic, dealing with the consequences of the extreme hard Brexit and this. Uh, this government i'm on my fifth prime minister uh, <laughs> it's like you know i mean like they just you know a bit like what they say about london buses you were ages for one to come along then five come along at the same time but it's uh yeah and obviously you know uh, dealing with something personal to me for obvious reasons and we'll come to this is the issue of both air pollution and uh, climate change and you know one of the great things about uh, our city is actually when you look back you mentioned some of the, the tragedies of the last, you know, five, six, seven years. When often, when I meet mayors, they joke, what's next? A plague of locusts. <laughs> but actually, our city over the last few hundred years has dealt with, you know, lots of challenges, you know, from pandemics to blitzes, Second World War, of course, to plagues, to uh, fires, to, to terror attacks. And we've always bounced back. And I, I'm supremely confident we'll bounce back this time as well. So as with all of our guests, this is a conversation about how the events of your life shaped and changed your worldview, particularly in the context of this book, Breathe, which is about which is about uh, climate change, air pollution in particular. But for, the, for those listening to this and not watching this, uh, Ollie's holding up my, my book and he's, he's, he's the most glamorous hostess I've ever had. Thank you, mate. So, uh, That's thank very you. kind. That's very kind. Um, let's, let's begin at the beginning. It's a sensible sure. place to start. Describe the London of the 70s and 80s that you grew up in. Well, you know, there's... there's, there's this mistake we often make when you get to my age where you look back and you only have the fondest of memories you know, genuinely had a great childhood and so you know when you hear you know there's eight, you know 10 of us in a, in a three-bedroom council flat when you hear about you know the national front who are around in south london when you hear about the poverty which we clearly experienced you know um and so forth you sort of may think that it was all doom and gloom and a horrible childhood it really wasn't you know I've got the fondest of memories growing up. You know, I've got three brothers older than me and a sister older than me, three brothers younger than me. My dad worked all the hours God sends in relation to not just driving a bus in his core hours, but doing overtime. My mum, in addition to raising us, used to have a machine in the corner. She'd do piecework. You know, she was a seamstress, make clothes, a 50p address, whatever, to, to, to help support the, the family. We'd be out all the hours God sends on the streets. Yeah, sometimes getting into a fight and so forth. Um, but I had a really good childhood. And, you know, I still go back to the Henry Prince estate where, where we grew up, you know, uh, still recognize faces from there. In fact, I was yesterday doing something, you know, at Global Studios and bumped into an electrician there who was also from the Henry Prince estate. And so I yeah, had a great childhood and, you know, uh, you know, uh, and there was nothing I'd change. What do you remember most strongly? What are sort of the key moments or defining moments of your formative years, those early years in your life? I remember always feeling safe because my big brothers were strong, right? Uh, you know, in my family, I'm the littlest. Uh, and the only the, I've got, so I've got, I've got there, there are seven, there are seven boys and you won't believe this or you probably will. I'm the only one of the seven boys who didn't do boxing. 
I didn't need to, man, because I, I oh, did the right, right. Sure, sure. Yeah, so I train. I never, I never. I did, so they all, they all. You didn't fight, is that what you mean? They, they all had amateur belts. Yeah, they all, yeah, they all, yeah, they all. Yeah. They all they, so when you're when you you got amateur boxing, you you got a medical card, and they all had belts. And you know, my my youngest brother and you know two of my nephews were, were English champions. And my one of my brothers is, a, is is now a coach. He you know, and so because I, I didn't feel I needed to. I, I like team sports as a start, but you know, so so I had a great childhood. My memories being out and about all the hours God sends. You know, exploring London through the buses. The we'd have a free travel card, or then it became a Red Bus Rover, sixty p for the whole day. I had a Grifter. For those that don't know, Grifter's the the bike where you change the gears and you pretend you're riding a motorbike. You know, the three on the right hand yeah. side, three gears. My older brother Tarek had a chopper, so you pretend to have have a gearbox. <laughs> and so it's fond memories of being out and about and stuff. You know, I, I also I love school. I, you know, I you know, so I'm one of these. I, I like school. I like being out and about. And, you know, I had a great childhood. I. You mentioned earlier, right, 10 of you in a three-bed council flat. There's the practical side of that, which is, as I understand it, you sharing a bunk bed until the age of 25, I think. Yeah. That must be a really difficult thing as a young man, conceiving of yourself, your identity, your responsibility, trying to blossom and develop a little bit. What was that like for you? It must have been quite difficult. So when we were, when we were about 10, the, 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 the joy of a council flat, people don't realise this, is two things. One is you get security. So you're not going to get a private landlord turfing you out without notice. But also, you know how much rent you're going to pay each, each month. So what my dad did was pay, and my mum, paying rent each month to the council, but put money aside for a deposit to buy his own home. So when I was about 10, my dad, mum and dad managed to afford a deposit. Uh, they bought their own home with the help of a mortgage. Uh, but even that three-bedroom home, owner occupier, still 10 of us, right? And so I remember, you know, going to university and so happy having my own room in the halls of residence. I mean, I can't tell you the joy. So people usually are excited to go to university because, you know, for whatever reason, right? For me, it's getting my own bedroom. And the idea of my own bedroom when I was in the halls of residence was just a dream. And then I went to law school in, in Guildford for a year, again, my own bedroom for another year. And then I, you know, I got did well in my my degree, did well in my law school. I come back home, literally the top bunk, uh, you know, 23 years old. I was, 20, I was 21, 22, 23. Uh, my brother's in the lower bunk. Uh, I, I'm a trainee solicitor doing some big cases, literally, you know, going to do a big fraud trial in Nottingham, going to the police station in the daytime, drops in a client, coming home in a shared bedroom at nighttime, jumping on the top bunk. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's inexplicable, you might think, but that's the life we knew, right? Because, you know, moving back to, to home. And then my brother and I, um, managed to save up enough and we bought a home together you know but it was you know it was the phrase is character building <laughs> um, but it also it, keep, it keeps you humble and mm. so you know I can say hand on heart you know until I was 23, 24 you know I slept in a bunk bed I, I had the top one my brother had the bottom one he, <laughs> he gets, a point of pride there well, well he has seniority right he gets to choose um, <laughs> uh, but, but it's uh, yeah and you know but the thing about when you're in a confined space is, is you, you learn how to share Mm. But also the, the two things people who know me well say about me is I talk fast and I eat fast. And my response is when you're when there's eight of you, right, to be heard, you've got to talk fast, right? Uh-huh. Uh, but you've got to eat fast as well if you're on seconds. As th- that's really interesting. I, I didn't know about you. So going away to uni, having that independence and then coming back and it changing. It's hard. It's really hard. Was it emasculating? I mean, how did it change your sort of sense of masculine it's really, identity? It's a really, I've not thought about this um, recently. But Don't blame it's, it's you. That, no, but it's the freedom you get going away because you got to remember, you, you don't miss what you've never had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so we never had our mates over to our house because there's no space. I'm not being funny. There was just there would have been no space for your mates to come over. It's bad enough with not, not horrible. It's bad enough with just our own family, right? So, mm. if my mates came over, where they're gonna where they're gonna go, right? So, I kid you not, there was no space in our bedroom for a desk. So we would literally do our homework on the on the floor, right? So again, not great for your posture and so forth, but also it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, encourage you to spend two, three, four hours doing homework or revising for exams. Well, literally I revised for my O-levels. It was then before GCSEs and A-levels on the floor of our bedroom. Right. And so, you know, it was, you know, and when I compare and contrast others, who have got their own bedroom, they've got a desk and so forth. It's not, it's not a level playing field, but then I get to go away. Mm. And so there's, I've got my own room in the halls of residence. I just like, what? And you know, there's a desk. It's like, and and there's this realization. This is how people live, and so this is why I say I had a great childhood mm. because I didn't know anything else, you know. And so, I, I, and then you get to go to that's that Hall's residence. Then you, you, you're on place, 
with my two best mates in Guildford. And then you go back home and that's, and that's where you realize how hard it is because now you, now you've realized what, how green the grass is on the mm. other side and you've got to go back to it. And that, there, that it is hard. I'm not going to pretend it's not hard. A word about your parents then, because seven boys and a sister, I mean, you're a parent yourself, obviously they must've had a real job on their hands. Look, I, I'm in awe of, of my parents. My, my father passed away in 2003, September the 4th, 2003. Uh, uh, my mum's still going strong at H1, H2. She's the Don Corleone of the, the Khan family, <laughs> the, the matriarch. She's, I, I, she's, a gangster. She's, she's the boss. Yeah, <laughs> it, she, she's the G. Uh, but, but here's the thing about, let, let me tell you about my, so, so my grandparents, so my family's originally from India, what is now India. And in 1947, uh, when the British Empire decided to leave India, they very, very speedily partitioned India into India in the middle, West Pakistan on one side, East Pakistan on the other side. And the short version of the long story is if you're of Muslim faith, you basically left India to go to either West Pakistan or East Pakistan. If you were a Hindu or Sikh in what is now West, what was then West Pakistan, East Pakistan, you went to India. And so my family, both my maternal family and paternal family, had to rapidly leave India. Uh, and my dad's side was quite wealthy and go to, they both ended up in Karachi, which was then the capital of uh, Pakistan. So my grandparents had the trauma of being migrants from India to uh, Pakistan. Um, my my parents wanted a better life for their kids um, and so were migrants to this country. And so I'm the first in three generations of Khans who has no intention of being a migrant. But also they made huge sacrifice. I'll tell, tell you an amazing fact about, about me, which is I was born in St. George's Hospital in Tootin, uh, raised in a council estate up the road in Ellsfield, uh, ended up buying a property, uh, a stone's throw from St. George's, and I live a longer stone's throw from St. George's. I've moved in a radius of about three miles in my entire life, right? My parents moved you know, three, four, five thousand miles. So learned a new language, learned a new culture, raised all these kids. And my dad and mum still sent money back to Pakistan on a regular basis to support their family. And my mum still does support her family, send remittances back. And so I'm in awe of them because, you know, it's hard enough raising the two kids that I've got. And, you know, we're middle class now, right? But they've them raising eight kids really well. I just, I'm in awe of them in relation to the sacrifices they've made. I, I recognise the challenges uh, they had. I mentioned, you know, earlier on that, the, you know, National Front, the racism and stuff. So you're going to a new country, you've been invited, by the way. There were adverts in newspapers in Pakistan, invited them here. You know, my dad, who's an educated man, I'm not saying this in a pejorative way at all, you know, could earn more money as, as a bus driver, and he loved being a bus driver, and we're very proud of him, than he could do in other jobs, because those are the jobs that people like him were expected to do, right? Uh, for more than 25 years. And so, you know, raised a family, notwithstanding the racism and so forth, and I'm in awe of them. I'd just like to delve, I don't want to plumb this too deeply, but the racism and how it intersects with the British Pakistani experience. Um, you mentioned earlier that you weren't an amateur boxer, but I've got a quote here that you've given before about that experience growing up. And you said, in our area, on our estate, there were certain things you couldn't say and get away with. Mm. So if somebody called you the P word, that means there's a fight. That's it. We're having a fight. You couldn't allow that to be tolerated. As not an amateur boxer, but a boxer, you must be sort of partially aware of your record in those fights. How did you get on? What was it like? Brutal. Yeah, yeah. listen, uh, what, was, what, was interesting was, what was interesting was the sense of solidarity. And so there are a few, a few things that are unacceptable. The N word, the P word. Uh, we, we, there weren't many Jewish people in our estates. The Y word didn't, didn't, didn't come up on the estate. It came up later on, on the football terraces and so forth. Yeah. Um, that's a, that sense of solidarity is really empowering. It gives you courage. You, you know, listen, for those that have never seen me, I'm, I'm not the tallest man in the world or the widest man in the world. So, you know, um, but I'm not scared to have a fight if you if you cross a line. Uh, and and, and that, that confidence comes from feeling empowered by your mates. Um, and so there's, a, there's a, a, you know, so, so uh, you know, unless you're at, at number 20 to one by the NF, you, in which case the advice is run, um, you have that fight. Because if you tolerated those sorts of words, you could spread. But also there's the issue of respect. If you allow people to disrespect you, that's a problem. Uh, what's interesting, and I, I, I reflect on this a lot, both as a parent, as a member of parliament, and now as the mayor, is I can't think of one case, and there are lots of fights in the state where a knife was brought. It's interesting. You know, mm. cricket bats, yes. Hockey sticks, yes. Um, we didn't have baseball bats in those days. Um, 
but not knives. Because um, you'd, you know, you'd beat the crap out of somebody, but there was, again, a line. You know, I can't, I, again, I can't remember growing up anybody lost their lives mm. in these fights. And, and and if you went back in the TARDIS now, they, you could call us a gang. We weren't a gang. We didn't you know, have a name and stuff, but we were mates hanging around and stuff. But mm. it was really important, that issue of, you know, I don't mind you, you, you having a go at me, but not because of my color of my skin. That mm. is unacceptable and mm. stuff. And so it could be different schools. That's fine. I don't, it's not fine. You know what I mean? That, that's understandable. I know. But not race. Race, you've crossed the line. Uh, you know, and um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I say this with with trepidation. I can't think of a fight I lost. But let me put it that way. Oi, oi, here we go. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, that's really interesting what you just said there about serious youth violence and knives. I mean, I want to. If we have time, we'll talk about that issue in a bit more detail later on. But just quickly, what do you think's changed? What's different? I mean, how has London changed? How has the culture of the estate and the, the young people in this city? What's different about it? A lot of things. So, so firstly, I, I just think about the number of activities we could do growing up. Right. After school. You know, there was Cricket schools clubs. There, exactly. There were schools. Spot. <laughs> there were school clubs. There were youth clubs. The boxing club. Cricket. Football. After school. Weekends. Summer holidays. The latchkey club. Summer schemes. Keeping young people busy was really important. The other thing is this. Listen, I'm not, I'm not you know, I'm somebody who loves America, loves American culture. But we also have very little access to culture in relation to what's going on in America. You know, baseball bats, knives, gangs, turfs and so forth. We, had, we literally had growing up three channels, BBC One, BBC Two and ITV. Later on, Channel 4 came in H2. There was no satellite TV. You know, radio was, the, the issue was music, the American culture of, of music. And so some of that is, you know, we've become Americanized in relation to, you know, gangs and so forth, so forth. But actually, you got to give young people, you've got you to keep young people busy. Mm. You've got to give them good things, constructive things to do. You want to think about my mentors, not just my big brothers and my dad, but, you know, boxing coach, the cricket coach, my teachers, you know, and when you speak to young people now and you say, who's your mentor? And there's silence. You know, who do you look up to? Who's your role model? Who do you aspire to be like? And there's silence. But, you know, that being said, until I was in, until I was, later on in secondary school and the head t a new head teacher joined our secondary school an Asian man called Mr. Bakari and as Bakari he was the first Asian man I met who wore a suit to go to work because my dad wore a uniform uh, you know many of my black mates their dads wore a uniform could be going to the FX factory next door or to go into the railways or whatever I, you know I, I'd seen white people on buses wearing a suit or on the tube I'd never seen an Asian man wearing a suit to go to work because that's not the sort of work we did, right? And so Mr. Bakari, who was the head teacher of, of Ernest Bevin School, who became a mentor to me, he was the first person who looked like my dad, who was who was in a top position, head teacher of, of, of a school. So you mentioned what's had changed now is is also that sense of, you know, having a role model you can look up to and copy and stuff. So I'm not sure now young people have somebody they know, and Mr. Bakari was somebody who became a friend as well as a mentor who you can look up to and be like, do you see what I mean? Mm. And I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in, believer in you can't be if you can't see it. But if you can see bad stuff, so if you, if you on your estate, there's somebody who's got, you know, nice watch, nice bling, nice trainers, and he's a member of a gang, you can see it and you want to be it and stuff, mm. right? When I was growing up, it was very different. <clears throat> I mean, that must have just been a transformative experience, meeting Mr. Bakari, right? It must oh, listen, I've got to tell you. You know, firstly, it gave you a sense of, wow. I mean, it really did, Wow. Uh, you know, the, the, the head teacher, that former head of Mr. Potter, you know, quintessential white head teacher. I say this not in a, you know, you know, posh head teacher, right? We love, mm -hmm. we respected him, mm -hmm. a bit scary and so forth. And this guy comes in and he's got a name called Bakari, which is very similar to, you know, we've got, that's a, I recognize that sort of name. He's a Muslim. Mm. Um, he's the head teacher. He's got this, you know, power and, and aura around him. Um, and it, it was, you know, it was, it was that when you think, yeah. And there was another, there's another example where I remember when I was about 16 or 17, I remember the year, it's 1987. And I saw on TV, cause my dad was assiduous. The, the, the only time you could watch the news was nine o'clock or 10 o'clock. The BBC news was at nine o'clock. ITV news at 10 o'clock. There weren't all these other news channels and so forth, but watching the news, I can't remember which night it was. It must've been a few days after the election and seeing these four people, um, Bernie Grant, uh, Paul Bartang, um, Diane Abbott and Keith Vaz elected to parliament as MPs. And it's just like, it's like what? They're, so, you know, the, the MP in Tooting, a guy called Tom Cox, you know, we never at that stage met him. I later on became friends with him. But, you know, we never see, we never seen 
people in Parliament, you know, when, when we think of Parliament as the mother of all Parliaments, and they look like that. Mm. It's like, you know, and, you know, Bernie Ball, you know, Diane and uh, Keith Vaz. And obviously for us, all four was an impact because we had mates who looked like all four, obviously Keith Vaz because he's Asian, but all four of them. And so these things when you're growing up where you think, and then, you know, and so, and, and I don't think people realize now how much we've progressed. So I'm somebody who can say, Ollie, and I say this genuinely, I think it's consistent to say on the one hand, there's been massive, 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 positive, transformative progress in this city, in this country, which makes me immensely proud. There's no other city in the world I'd raise my kids. But on the other hand, we've still got big problems. We can't pretend it's mission accomplished because of the fantastic progress we've made. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So let's move on then from your childhood. You studied law, as you mentioned, in London and specialised in human rights law, uh, ascending to partner at a firm, working on many high-profile cases, for example, Majid Nawaz for being part of a prescribed Islamist organisation in Egypt. One of your clients was imprisoned in Guantanamo Bay. Um, what did you want to take on cases such as those? And I don't mean them specifically, but more work around civil liberties and yeah. social justice. So so when I, when I was at law school... Um, I'd applied for a number of traineeships and had interviews with a number of the Magic Circle firms. The Magic Circle firms are the, the sort of, you know, the big, big firms which give you lots of money, you know, and they've got firms all around the world. And as a working class boy, you know, you want to be wealthy, right? Let's be frank. You, you want to you have a nice car, you want a nice home and so forth. Um, the reason why I decided to become a lawyer is because, you know, I, I, the, frankly speaking, you know, combination of To Kill a Mockingbird, I wanted to be Atticus Finch. There's a program that many of your listeners won't know about called LA Law, which was in the, on the 80s and 90s, which is, which is some really good, you know, cases every week. You know, the great characters, one of them, Victor Fuentes, Jimmy Smith. So I wanted to be like, I wanted to be Victor, I wanted to be Fuentes. Um, I, I, so I studied law, but then I, but, but then I, a number of things that, you know, the light bulb moments, you know, one was seeing the way my friends, big brothers were treated by the police. We, we said in those days, thing called sus law. It's before stop and search was incorporated in the uh, enacted in the and in, in the police and criminal evidence in 1984 before that was called the sus law which ultimately led to the riots in brixton in 1981 i had my you know my dad's bus garage was being closed down because of the thatcher government i had you know people whose parents were being unfairly dismissed and so i wanted to be a lawyer that was helping the underdog uh you know uh, you know not a lawyer that, that makes money and so i had interviews both at city firms and a firm that I eventually joined. And the reason why I was so proud to join Christian Fisher was because Louise Christian had done many high-profile cases. You know, she acted for the victims of the Marchioness Riverboat disaster in the River Thames. She'd acted for the victims of uh, the Lockerbie plane crash. Mike Fisher had acted for uh, one of the Guildford Four, a huge miscarriage of justice uh, case. He acted for Paddy Hill uh, and did many other really high-profile uh, uh, cases. He'd acted for, you know, some of the IRA and so forth. And so... I wanted to join a firm right where I could support people like my neighbours, my friends, my community in uh, Tooting and people, people, people like me. Um, and so I was really lucky to be accepted by them to be a training solicitor, and I was fortunate to to be kept on. And I worked my way up until ultimately I was, you know, Mike and Louise's partner. And then Louise and I went on to to run the firm when 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 Mike uh, left. But it was important for me to do something that I could, you know, feel like I was helping my community. And there's a number of there's numbers of ways you can help your community when you're growing up, and I thought that was me giving something back. Fed say you were guided by battling and confronting social injustice. Then, so in the context of that, 
you leave the law, you go into politics, you join the Labour Party, a Blairite Labour Party, the policy platform of which I think it's fair to say quite aggressively infringed civil yeah. liberties. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. How do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, no, it's, it's worse than that, actually, because I, I was, I was um, when I was uh, a lawyer in my spare time, I, I, I decided to become a councillor in Tutin. Uh, I was 23 when I was elected a councillor. Still in the bunk bed? Uh, still, st- genuinely. I, so I was literally still in the bunk bed, knocking on doors, going home, sleeping, sleeping in the bunk bed, right? Um, John Smith was the leader when I when I was when I was elected a, a, a councillor. Um, so in my spare time, I'm a councillor. I'm also in my spare time involved in uh, a, peer, a press group called Liberty, the National Council for Civil Liberties. I became chair of Liberty for for a number of uh, years. Um, you know, I'm very proud. Uh, you know, I was the guy that recruited Shami Chakrabarti to be to to work for us and and, and so forth. Also chair of Legal Action Group, which is a legal charity that deals with access to justice. Really proud of '97 when you know we have a Labour government which has some remarkable things passed in the Human Rights Act, you know, uh, freedom of information, some really, really amazing stuff. Some things I'm very unhappy about the Iraq War. You know, you know, uh, you know went on many marches to protest against the, the, the Iraq War. And when I when I, and what happened is about 2002, 2003, 2004, I forget the exact year. Tom Cox, who'd been the only MP for Tutin that I'd known, he was elected in 1970, the year I was born, literally. So the the only MP I'd ever known was Tom Cox. I don't, I don't even really lived in Tutin except for when I was at university in law school. Mm-hmm. He, uh, uh, aged 72, 73, uh, is stepping down. And so the thought occurs to me, I've been, I'm still a counsellor. I'm still active as well as my daytime job and having a wife and, and two kids. Um, the only MP, the only seat I'd want to be an MP for is my own, my own, my own man at Tutin. Uh, and I couldn't not go for it in relation to being an MP for Tutin. My, my lawyer friends thought I'm bonkers. Yeah, I'm earning a lot of money, you know, in relation to my the firm that I'm running with Louise, um, earning a lot of money. Um, also, not in a horrible way, I'm a lot younger than Louise, so ultimately I'll be the, the sole owner of the firm. Yep. Uh, the future looks bright. We employ more than 50 people. Um, I'm bringing cases in the House of Lords, European Court of Human Rights, Court of Appeals, so I'm setting precedents uh, because these cases have got a decent profile as lawyers go. Why give that up to become... Uh, an MP, and the answer is, firstly, if it wasn't Tutin, I wouldn't have gone for it. Secondly, even with the best case in the world where you've won, it could be the European Court or the House of Lords, you've set a precedent which benefits your, your client benefits when you win a case anyway. But if you set a precedent, a number of people benefit from that precedent being set. But actually, your ability to influence people's lives is limited. The idea of being a parliamentarian, particularly when your party's in government is huge because you can affect legislation that if, that impacts the entire country millions of people rather than just a minority and so I, i'm successful in being selected as the candidate in tutin i'm successful in being elected to parliament and then i realize it's more difficult than i thought because my party is in government but some of the things they're doing i don't support uh, and one of the first things that becomes an issue is very soon after I'm elected, there's a tragedy in London, which is uh, 7-7. 52 Londoners are killed at the hands of four terrorists. And the response from the uh, government is knee-jerk. Let us pass a law that detains people for 90 days without charge. This is bonkers. How is that possible, right? And so, you know, I make myself unpopular with the leadership the whips and so forth very quickly because I can't go, I can't, you know, I can't accept that. Yes, people are saying, you know, you know I'm one of the bright stars, got a bright future in the lower part and so forth, but listen, I can't with a clear conscience support 90 days. And so, you know, I second the amendment from a guy called David Winnick uh, to, to vote against that. It's the first ever time Tony Blair is defeated since 97 in a vote in the House. Uh, and so people assume I'm a troublemaker, I'm a maverick, I'm there to cause problems. I'm not. I just, I support nearly everything the government's doing, you know, a couple of exceptions. Um, but, you know, do you want to be, you know, influencing things inside the tent, making a change in parliament? And then you've got to decide whether you're the legislature or the executive. Or do you want to be, you know, doing really good work as, as a pressure group or, or as a lawyer, challenging those cases, challenging some of that legislation in the courts, there's merit in both of those things, by the way. I've still got friends who are lawyers doing great cases. I've still got friends involved in pressure groups. But it's it's choosing which which what's the best fora to be involved in the change. Okay, interesting. 
So fast forward a couple of years, 2007, you're working for Jack Straw, foreign secretary who oversaw the invasion of Iraq. As part of that work with the foreign secretary, you helped push through the Commons legislation that gets defeated in the Lords eventually, but that would have extended detention without charge to six weeks. That's later on. So that's so, so I'm aware. So after Jack, so, so Jack's PPS when Jack's leaving the house um, in 2000 and, uh, 2007. And then, and then what happens then is I become a whip. Um, and so the issue is whether it's, there's a, the, the, the law currently is the shorthand is you can be arrested in basically 24 hours. There's some extension if it's a serious case. Mm. Seven days is basically there. It's, then it's 14 days and that's that's gone through um the issue is whether it's 14 days or 90 days and so the compromise is 42 days because the alternative is 90 days and so one of the things that that you you got to recognize is you know uh, as much as we all like to be purists at some stage you've got to compromise and if the choice is 90 days or 14 days so what people don't realize is david Wick, david winnick and i and, and emily thornbury a few of us we had a second amendment which was 42 days and so had we lost the 90 days, we'd have pushed 42 days and been very happy with 42 days because the alternative is 90 days, right? Mm. So what people don't know, the untold story is, is that 42 days is what we had in our back pocket back in 2005. And so a few years later, again, this comes up and the, there's talk of 90 days. And so the option is, again, going back to 90 days or pulling out the back pocket, the 42 day stuff, which, which people don't realize because there's a case of chicken taking place here in relation to, you know, um, uh, trying to, trying to persuade colleagues to support 42 days. Uh, but bear in mind, that's the ceiling now, no longer 90 days. And so, you know, 42 days is infinitely better than uh, 90 days. Clearly not as good as uh, 14 days. And so that's that's the compromise I'm talking about. And so that, that's, the, that's the choice you make when, you're, when you become a parliamentarian, which is you can be somebody who, I'm not criticizing them by the way, some of my friends are these people, politicians, the, the purists with a megaphone, who can who can affect the narrative a bit, or you can be somebody who's been pragmatic and bringing about change and stuff, and that's that's a choice people make. And you know, and I went for the pragmatism. I'm glad you started talking about that because it segues us quite nicely onto climate, air pollution, etc., which is the reason for this conversation. Um, a few years later than what we were just talking about, and about nine years ago now, you were diagnosed with asthma. I imagine that was fairly surprising as a, well, yeah, a boxer, a man who's fit. Can you tell me a little bit more about that diagnosis? I imagine it. Surprised you, right? Well, there's a couple of things about that. Which is, the first thing is this: I, you know, I, I, I've got to be honest and have the humility to recognise I'm the guy that when I became a partner in 1997, when I, was, I was only 26. But what I negotiated was a car park space on Museum Street for my Saab convertible. I had this gorgeous black Saab convertible with leather interior. Um, that's the reason I'm telling the story is not to boast about my Saab, but to, give you, <laughs> to, to explain to explain my journey. Do you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, and then when I become an equity partner, uh, and, and Anise is born by then my oldest, uh, and having a two-seat is not good for your back when you're putting a car seat in the back and so forth. Um, I, you know, I, I swapped my Saab convertible for a Land Rover Discovery, a seven-seater, right? I, I kid you not, I left London probably twice when I mm. the Land Rover Discovery. When I'm an MP, uh, I'm a minister, uh, as part of the collective responsibility, you got you, you tell the party line once it's been agreed in cabinet. I voted for a third runway in Heathrow. And that's just, that backstory is important, Ollie, because I want to be honest with, with your listeners, but also explain my journey. <clears throat> in addition, I'm quite, I am quite fit, you know. I've, I, I take pride in, I enjoy football. I still play football when I can. I still play tennis when I can and so forth. And I'm reasonably well read. I'd like to think, you know, an ex-cabinet minister, ex-shadow cabinet, parliamentarian, but I'm so ignorant. What do I mean by still being ignorant? So, so I, 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 in a gratuitous effort to suck up to the standard to get their endorsement to run for mayor, but also to raise money for charity, uh, agreed to run the London Marathon in 2014. And, you know, have a fourth medical before I run it, which is important to the story. Passed with flying colours in relation to the medical. All the tests are done. I train for the marathon. I only have eight weeks to train, ten weeks to train. I run along the streets of London while I'm training to get to get an idea of because it gives you gets you an idea of what the marathon will be like. So rather than running in a park, you run along streets to give you, give you in the field of stuff. Mm-hmm. I run the marathon, raise lots of money for charity. Um, then a few months later, I notice problems in relation to my you know when I'm running when I'm sprinting for a ball playing football, I'm out of breath quicker. You know, at night time I'm coughing a lot. You know, I'm clearing my throat a lot. So if you and I were talking in 2014, I'd be clearing my throat three, four, five times during the course 
of the interview and you know you're so busy doing stuff you don't think about getting it checked out and stuff and then it got to a stage where my wife you know said listen so, so, you know you said that you got you got to go and get this checked out you, you know you know and it was and you say so okay let's go and so she even went with me because she didn't trust that i'd go to the gp and get it checked out and is that i was dumbstruck when the doctor did the test and she said you've got asthma because you know when i was at school there were probably two people in the entire year that had asthma they had the blue pumps they didn't play sports they didn't run in the playground and that's my view of asthma um but also i didn't understand because i never had asthma or bronchitis or breathing issues and there's this thing called adult onset asthma and then you start speaking to experts you get do further tests you start doing research and you discover that actually there's these things in the air we can't see called particulate matter nitrogen oxide nitrogen dioxide and it's an indivisible killer leading to children having stunted lungs adults with a whole host of health issues from asthma to cancer dementia to heart disease and i was blown away and also the causes of air pollution are the same as the causes of climate change and so even somebody who's quite well informed thinks i'm a progressive well i hope hopefully i'm a progressive i assumed climate change was something that happens to them global south other parts of the country but also happens 20 30 years down the road in fact what i since discovered uh you know is climate change is happening to us happening now but also linked with that is air pollution you know each year in our city in london around 4000 premature deaths linked with air pollution across the country between 9 and 10000 across the globe 9 million deaths a year linked to air pollution how you mentioned your eldest there and we'll come into the policy in a second but i just quick question about how she informed your environment, how both your daughters informed your environmentalism, because obviously it's a bit of a hot button issue for the younger generation. Was it something they put on your radar? How have they changed how you thought about it? So, so, so firstly, uh, listen, I'm not going to fall down the cliche line about, you know, in relation to, you know, I only woke up because of my kids. I woke up because of self-interest. Let me be frank. Had I not got asthma, I'm not sure if I'd been on this journey, right? Well, okay. And so, you know, I've got to be honest, the, the self-interest being diagnosed has made me do the research. And then I met this wonderful woman called Rosamond, uh, whose daughter, aged nine, had passed away from air pollution, as, uh, asthma caused by air pollution. But my daughters, um, you know, and their generation, um, you know, are amazing and immense. You know, my daughters, you know, you know, are ahead of me in relation to what they know about it, what they knew about it. And so when I told them about this, it was like, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like they, they knew about it and stuff, right? Well, you talk, you know, so it's like you can't, this sort of stuff, I'm not teaching my kids, they're teaching me all the time in relation to air pollution. Where you, you know, they, There's a phrase my daughter used years ago, uh, which I still tease her about, saying she's going to buy some pre-loved clothes. I said, what, what are pre-loved clothes, right? It's, you know, pre-loved clothes. And mm -hmm. so, so, you know, because, because, you know, because why go and buy sort of disposable cheap stuff from the shops when you can buy vintage stuff? The other thing's vintage, right? See, I'm learning the jargon as well, pre-loved vintage and stuff. Um, way ahead of the game. And it's, it's all linked, by the way, in relation to how you make clothes, how you use clothes, how you reduce use um, from, you know, m both my kids, you know, assiduous walkers and, and you know, they use public transport, um, you know, because it's, it's different generationally and culturally. When I, be when I became 17, the, the number one thing I wanted to do was to get driving lessons, pass my driving test and get a car. That was a right of passive in your age, 16, 17, 18, living in South London, particularly if you're from working class family. It's a, also a sense of prestige. Mm -hmm. It's so, you know, I've passed my driving test. I've now got a car. My first car, Mini Clubman, I got when I was 17, 18, right? It was a hand-me-down from a brother, but, I, you know, but that's very different now. My kids have very, very different relation to, they, they, they use public transport everywhere. Um, you know, a lot of their mates haven't learned to drive. Um, you know, I, I thought I had to force my kids to learn how to drive because why don't, because I, I think I, my point is it's an important school to have, you know, mm -hmm. it looks great in the CV. It's a life school when you go on holiday, you may need to hire a car, whatever. For them, it's like, why? We've got great public transport. We don't need to drive and stuff. And so it's fascinating how that generation and they and you know, this Gen Z generation are mocked relentlessly by my generation, right? Yep. We can learn a thing or two or three from that generation. Okay. Those lessons then, how have they informed in your role as London Mayor and the policy around this issue? What are you doing? What can we do to a greater extent to improve the quality of the air that we all have to breathe? Well, firstly, this book isn't a political memoir. It's really important to, to, to explain that. What this book is, is a handbook, if you like, of what I've learned. But also there's the seven big obstacles I, you know, I, I've sort of categorised that, that you face dealing with this issue from, you know, um, um, fatalism, there's nothing we can do about it, to 
apathy doesn't affect me to cynicism you're all the same uh, to hostility and we're, we're going through that now in relation to the ultra low uh, emission zone so and but it's also a book of hope because when i when i first became mayor i was told um by experts at king's college it would take 193 years 193 years to bring the air quality in london within lawful limits 193 years we're going to do it by 2025 right in two years uh, with the ultra low emission zone in central london in two years we managed to reduce the toxicity in our air by almost 50 percent in two years we've managed to increase cycling lanes fivefold in london uh, from what it was when i first became mayor, 50 kilometers to more than 300 kilometers and i could go on in relation to stats and achievements mm. and so forth the point being is you can't do something about it and so i'm not saying I'm the most radical green activist in the world. I'm not. I still fly. I, you know, I still sometimes eat meat, you know, um, and so forth. My point being is that there, there are things we can do to affect change in our city, in our country. And let me tell you why it's important. Last year, you would have experienced, as I did, temperatures in our city north of 41 degrees Celsius. The year before, you would have witnessed, as I did, a flash flood in our cities leading to stations being flooded, people's flats and businesses uh, being uh flooded this is very much a now issue and a nice issue and like i said air pollution and uh, climate change are linked i had a conversation this week with lord Deben. lord Deben used to be called john gummer and he's the chair of the climate change committee and he's a uh, this is important to the story so he'll forgive me for saying this he's a tory right he's a tory serving thatcher's government government he will he will say to you if you ask him how important fighting air pollution is to tackling climate change and how it's a cross-party issue and all of us all of us have a skin in the game. So I mentioned before my selfishness in relation to my journey, but actually all of us uh, have, have skin in the game. You talked about the ultra-low uh, emission zone there and the hostility towards it. Just to be clear for listeners who aren't from London, don't understand what that is, it's £12.50 a day charge. If you drive a car of a certain level of pollution, that area was quite constricted to central London. It's been expanded now to include all of the boroughs. It's very controversial and I appreciate, I've heard you speak about this before, the hostility towards it, that some strands of the opposition to it are from a sort of fringe, extreme politics. If we have time, we can talk about that. But there are people, not of that persuasion, who this affects, right? Spot on. And, you know, particularly in terms of this city is so wealthy. I mean, I could reel the stats off. You don't need me to about mm. how this, this city is an economic powerhouse in this country. 30% of the tax revenue, roughly. Um, but there's extreme wealth inequality. And measures like this... The burden falls on the poorest, does it not? It is the people with the older cars, the cheaper cars, the people who perhaps have to drive in to work because they are from the areas of London that don't have the best public transport connections. Do these measures not make life for those working class people harder? I'll answer your question directly in a second. But if, if I may just explain how climate change and air pollution work. So, yes, you know uh, that climate change affects disproportionately the global south. Least responsible for climate change, suffering the worst consequences. So in a... On a macro level, the issue of climate change is an issue of social justice and, by the way, racial justice. In the UK and in London, it's the same. So who suffers the worst consequences of air quality and climate change? It's the poorest Londoners least likely to own a car. And by the way, not just an issue of social justice, an issue of racial justice. It's black Londoners suffer the worst consequences. It's, a, it's an irony of ironies. The rural borough of Kensington and Chelsea has the largest number of Land Rover discoveries, by the way, other brands available, has the best air quality um, uh, because they don't drive their cars in the local boroughs, just they drive them elsewhere across uh, London. Those who live near main roads, brackets, tend to be BAME communities, black agent, I think close brackets, suffer the worst air quality. So this actually is an issue of social justice and racial justice, but also half Londoners don't own a car. Mm-hmm. The poorest Londoners tend not to own a car, but you're right to recognise there are some people who may suffer indirectly as a consequence of the ultra emission zone, which is a pollution pays principle. So to address those people with genuine concerns, we've got the biggest scrappage scheme we've ever had uh, in the country, £110 million. By the way, not a penny of the government, not a penny from the government to support us. The government is helping clean air zones in Birmingham, in Bournemouth, in Bath, in Manchester, but not London. And what so, do you think that is? Well, quite. I mean, if they had, you know, but, but so, so, and you know, and, and that's why you know, they're, they're punishing Londoners because there's a, there, there's a Labour mayor. But also, there's a classic trick politicians do, which is we can't deny now climate change is happening. We can't deny now air pollution is happening. So we are delaying action. So you speak to the government, you speak to by the governments across the globe that have targets 2050, 
2060, 2070, I got a newsflash, none of these prime ministers and presidents are going to be around in their jobs 2050, 2060, 2070. So what I'm doing is not delaying, but doing. Uh, and yeah, listen, of course it wasn't an easy decision. Of course, the easiest thing to do was to kick the can down the road. But I can't look the likes of Rosamond in the eye. I can't look, I can't go to Great Ormond Street Hospital and speak to the experts there, speak to the families affected by poor air quality there. I can't go to the Children's Evening Hospital and meet the kids there and the, the clinicians there and, and the families there. I can't have a conversation with Professor Chris Whitty, whose report as the Chief Medical Officer last year was an air pollution. Read the reports from Imperial College or King's College or speak to experts from the World Health Organization and put my head in the sand. And listen, the easy thing for me to do is to not take action yet and play to uh, the gallery. I'm unwilling to do so. Given your strength of feeling then about this and your desire to take action, other groups are doing the same, talking about Extinction Rebellion, Insulate Britain, Just Stop Oil, who have yeah, taken direct action and some pretty provocative protests. However, they have been met with some incredibly punitive policing and judicial sentences. I mean, in some instances, these activists, these protesters, and yes, they are doing things like sitting in roads, gluing themselves to things, in some cases, climbing up the Dartford Bridge, extreme example. But the prison sentences there some of these activists are receiving are comparable to what violent offenders get. As, and particularly with your civil rights lawyer hat on, you surely can't be looking at that and thinking, one, that that's fair, but two, that it has a place in a fair and just society. You know, if, if I've got a choice of having people who are passive consumers or active citizens, I'd, ra I'd far rather people be active citizens, right? It's really important to recognise that. What, what do I mean by that? You know, I'm as passionate about climate change as those that join this, these press groups, and we should encourage people to be active citizens, to be to care about the society they live in, to want to want to bring about change. And pressure groups for centuries have had a really crucial role in our democracy. You know, you think about some of the changes in the last 100, 200 years. So those that are anti-pressure groups should look at our history in relation to the role they've played in evolving our society and our, and our democracy. And there's always a tension. Right? If there wasn't a tension, you wouldn't need a pressure group, right? Because our policy would be perfect and be, would be change makers all the time. So I think it's really important to say, you know, those that join XR or Just Up Oil or these other groups, the vast, 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 vast majority do it because they've got the right values, they, they care about it, want to bring about change, and they're impatient with the lack of progress from politicians. My, my, I caveat that by saying, in my view, it's really important when you protest, it's lawful, peaceful, and safe. Really important, right? But also the second point I make in relation to protest, lawful, peaceful, and safe is, I say this in a non-patronised way, it's a general point, not, not directed particularly at any particular group, but it is, when I used to be chair of Liberty or be chair of Legal Action Group or used to be chair of the Fabian Society, one of the questions I'd ask myself is, are we encouraging people to our cause, um, you know, and are we effective at lobbying the uh, decision makers? And I do worry about some of the tactics used by some of these groups uh, are counterproductive. I'll give you one example, uh, which is, a couple of years ago, uh, there were some protesters from one of these groups who stopped a DLR train going and jumped to the roof of a DLR train, which led to people who wanted to do the right thing as public transport getting very angry at this group and it almost turned to violence and so forth. Actually, public transport, walking and cycling is the one thing we're going to be encouraging, uh, not people being stuck in a car. And so that's just one example of, I think, a tactic that's not smart use of a really important cause and you could bring people uh, with you but you know in relation to uh, sentences and stuff I think I think you know one of the things we do need to do is to make sure parliament has proportionality when it comes to these uh, issues there needs to be some proportionality because actually is the reason why the sentence is so high to deter others because uh, let me into a secret there's a problem of people who want to join the campaign right so it's not deterring others there's a whole issue about you know what is the purpose of sentencing is to is it to rehabilitate is it to reform is it to deter is it to prevent reoffending and so forth? And I think you know, Parliament, particularly the Commons, uh, has lost the expertise and the artistry of improving legislation uh, for the benefit of our society. Because uh, what happens is, you know, you've got a situation where you've got for the last 13, 14 years, uh, a government who thinks you can win elections by having culture wars. And let's be clear, some of these press groups are being used as pawns in a culture war, aided and abetted by some of the mainstream. Uh, media I give examples in my book of so what some of the mainstream media say about you know climate change and uh, air quality and uh, you know it's really important we recognize what's going on how much of this is about carving out a meaningful political legacy for you as mayor of london if we look back over your time as mayor some will say perhaps many will say that perhaps the defining characteristic has been serious youth violence the metropolitan police's failed attempts to get a serious handle on that we could go further and talk about 
the rapist, the racist, in the extreme cases, the murderers within their own ranks that the Metropolitan Police has failed to root out. What's to say that that's not going to be the defining part of your legacy as mayor of London? Well, so I think you only start talking about legacy when you come towards the end of your your uh, your, your your career. I've still got another twenty four years left in relation to, to, do, to yeah. legacy. I'm really happy to talk about record. You know, since so, so you know, I'm the guy that called out the police. You know, I, I remember I remember being incredibly lonely, being the guy calling out the Met Police leadership. On the one hand, you've got the Prime Minister, the Home Secretary, the Police Minister, Her Majesty Inspectorate, the Met Police Federation. On the other hand, you got me and Londoners, uh, and it was me that led to the former commissioner, of course, uh, resigning, uh, and so forth. It was me that uh, you know asked for Dame Lou's cases report, which led to some of the conclusions that that that, that are well rehearsed in relation to institutional sexism, misogyny, institutional racism, and institutional homophobia. In relation to you know record, you call a legacy. You know, I'm 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 the mayor under whose leadership we have now record numbers of council homes being built more time than any time since the 1970s. More homes being completed any time since the 1930s. I'm the mayor that's reduced by 50%. The toxic air in central uh, London froze fares for uh, five years, introduced the Hopper Fair, uh, planted uh, more than 400,000 trees in my first you know, six years, double the amount the previous mayor planted in eight years. And I could go on in relation to uh, record, but I do feel passionate about uh, air pollution and, and climate change as, as well. And the choice is this. Is my generation the first generation to get it in relation to climate change or air pollution or the last generation not to get it? Because you're spotting about my daughter's generation, they get it. You know, you know, Gen Z's coming whether you like it or not. And so, you know, we, we've got an option whether to literally, you know, get on the bus and make sure we bring about these changes or to step aside and let others uh, do so. And so, you know, I do feel passionate about this. But, you know, uh, we'll meet again many, many times over the next uh, 24 years. And at the end of the, uh, in, 20, in 24 years' time, we'll have a proper chat about a legacy. Sadiq Khan, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.